Hello, good morning everybody. So it's great to be here. What a fantastic time of worship. And, and as you'll see, as I, I go into my preach, uh, my sermon, sorry, Barbara, um, that I will be able to talk to you and show you how how God is already speaking to us. And a lot of what God has been talking about, about the work that he's begun in, in us, that he's going to complete, how all of that feeds into what I think he wants to say to us this morning. So I've got a PowerPoint that I'm going to do. I am a lecturer. Some of you will know that I am a lecturer. So I like a PowerPoint. Gives me a bit of gives me a bit of structure. So it's there to help me, but I'm hope, hopeful that it'll help you guys as well. So I'm going to share screen in a moment. When I've shared screen, if you go to the view button in the corner, uh, in the right hand top right hand corner, you can choose speaker side by side view, and that means you'll get a picture of me on the right and the slides on the left. So that will will help so that you can see the slides and see me at the same time. So here we go. I'm going to try and share screen now. So hopefully this will work. Um, here we go. So hopefully you can see that and hopefully you've got a nice picture of Ez, the, the, the um, Ezra slide that, that Keith has been using. So we're going to be looking at the, uh, the, the um, Les is giving me a thumbs up. Thank you, Les. Um, so um, this is um, the book of Ezra that we're looking at. We're looking at Ezra 4. Um, I picked up the tagline that Keith gave it, which is in this world, you will have trouble. And we'll see that this is all about opposition. So I feel that what the Lord wants to say to us today is about how we deal with opposition in our daily lives. But I'm going to start with a bit of an overview of where Ezra sits within the Old Testament and within God's story. Uh, here we go. Let's click and let's see if that's going to work. There we go. Is that the right slide? Why is that not working? Ah, I know why. It's because I've switched my keyboard off. There we go. Marvellous. Here we go. That was an anti-cat device because the cat kept rolling on the keyboard. Here we go. So the background to this is I felt that when I came to this, um, I have probably read through the Bible all the way through once or twice in my life. I've been a Christian about 15 years, but I tend to spend most of my time in the New Testament, truth be told. I must have read this at least twice, but I didn't really remember it very well. So I went and kind of looked at where it was in the background. Um, I went to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson, which I find very, very helpful for this kind of thing. So I'm using his sort of outline just to ground us in that. So if we remember the, 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 um, the, the, the Israel are God's chosen people. He is the, the um, people that he has chosen to spread his message in the world. But if we remember that there are rebellious people all the way through the story of Genesis and the Exodus, and all the way through the books of Moses, they are not doing what God wants them to do most of the time. There's a there's a sort of interplay of um, God leading them and them being rebellious and God chastising them, punishment, punishing them. And the punishments gets greater and greater as time goes on. And eventually God gets really, really fed up and he allows them to be taken into exile. And there are two exiles, major exiles that happen. So the first exile is the, of the 10 tribes in the north of Israel, which end up slightly confusingly also getting called Israel. And they are conquered by the Assyrians in 721 BC. Now, that's not what we're talking about. That happened 
But Ezra actually is focusing on the, the, the uh, return of the second exile. So the second exile is the two tribes in the south. Uh, again, slightly confusingly, they take the name of one of those two, there's Judah and Benjamin, and they take the overall name of Judah. They are conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. So that's 586 years before Christ is born. And um, so that's the second exile. So we are thinking about the return of that. So um, and that is broken down into three bits. It was not like the exodus um, fr from Egypt. It was, um, although that took a long time because they wandered for 40 years in the desert, in this one, it, it happened in sections and dribs and drabs. So there's a first group um, which um, where the royal court um, where, um, was deported to Babylon, and that included Daniel, and that was in about 606 BC. Um, that, that was kind of meant to see if that would sort things out, that kind of didn't. So then God allowed a second one, which then took people like the craftsmen, the second level down in the social classes, which was the craftsmen and the merchants in about 597 BC. And that interestingly inc included the priest Ezekiel. So that's where Ezekiel comes into the story. And then there's a third group, which is basically everybody else. And that is when the temple gets raised to the ground. Jerusalem gets raised to the ground. That's about in 586 BC. And all of this had been prophesied by, by the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah does, does say that after you know, 70 years, they will come back. Although they seem to have forgotten that largely. That, that is there. So then you've got the three returns. So then 70 years later in 537 BC, about 50,000 people under King Cyrus, the Persian king, and Zerubbabel, I love that word, Zerubbabel, the leader of the Jews, um, that's the first return, um, which is the first bit of the book of Ezra. And then after that, you've got the, the second return, which is about 1,800 people. And that's it, it, it under King Artaxerxes I and Ezra. So that's when Ezra himself makes an appearance. And then there's a, a few more people in 444 BC, and that's led by Nehemiah, which is in the book of Nehemiah. And in those three returns, we're talking about three things that are happening. There's a rebuilding of their social life, a rebuilding of their social identity and their racial identity. And we'll see how that got mixed up in a minute. A rebuilding of the religious life. So a, a, a coming back to the, the law of Moses in the temple and doing things the way God wants them to do. And a, um, an actual physical re rebuilding. So we're going to look at those. And we're going to see how that works. So the book of Ezra and ne uh, books of Ezra and Nehemiah are actually in, in, in terms of how the Jewish people see them. They see them as one book. And it's thought that perhaps Ezra wrote both of them. So they can be seen as a whole. But um, so I'm going to just touch on that. We're not going to look at Nehemiah in this series, but I just thought I'd touch on it so that you could go off and read Nehemiah because it's not a very long book. You could go and read it off. Um, by yourself. But in Ezra, we've got the first return that I've, I've just um, talked about on the, the previous slide, then rebuilding, which is where I'm at in chapter four in the middle then. Then there's a second return. Then there's the more reforming and coming back to the laws of Moses that Ezra starts to talk to them about. 
And then if you move into the book of Nehemiah, as I say, in, in the Jewish scripture, it's all one book. You've then got the third return, more rebuilding, renewing and reforming. So that happens. So what about Ezra 4, which is the bit that I've been given to speak about? So in Ezra 4, we start to see opposition. So at the end of Ezra 3, we've seen the re rebuilding of the altar. And they've started in that first um, return. They've come back to Jerusalem and they've built the, um, the altar. And there's been a, a, you know, a lot of fanfare and celebration around that. And the people around them have started to notice that. So we've got sort of three stages that I want to look at. I mean, I want to look at it in three stages as for what it means for us. So you've got the world's subtle hostility towards them, some obvious hostility in the next couple of verses. And then there's a larger chunk, which is made up of two letters, which is the more persistent hostility that is happening. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. There's quite a lot of, it's 24 verses, so it's not a huge chunk of scripture. So I thought, do I read it all, do I not? But I'm actually, am going to, I did feel led to, to read it and, and to go through it and then look at what I think it means for us today. So what happened? So now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, so that's Judah overall, heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and, and, and Jeshua or Joshua um, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the King of Persia, has commanded us. So what is going on here? So who are these people who are referred to as the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin? So it's, it's an important key thing to, to realise that the Jewish people did not all get deported during those deportations. Just a second. And what happened was that some of them were left behind. And as some of them were left behind, they intermarried with the other people in the nations around them that, that were brought in by the Assyrians to settle the land. And that created the Samaritan people. And as you might know, the Samaritans are not thought well of by the Jewish people. We see that, and when we understand that, that makes the parable of the Good Samaritan make sense. We think of Samaritans in our own culture, because I think because of the charity of the Samaritans, that they're good. They're good people, and that charity is very good. But the word Samaritan came from the reason why that parable is so powerful is that the Jews hated the Samaritans because they... They represented, because of this intermarriage, they represented something, they'd taken bits of the Jewish faith and mixed it with other bits of faith, which we're going to look at. And that is spoken of in, in 2 Kings 17, which is talking about what happened to the land after um, the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity. And it's a long bit, but I'm going to read just a couple of bits. I've not put it on my slide, but I'm going to read a couple of bits from that long passage. 
So it's basically talking about the, the peoples that have come from Assyria and settled the land. So when it talks about the nations, that's what it means. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. And it then names some of those nations. And then it goes on to say they also feared God. And appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in shr the shrines of the high places. So they feared that the Lord would also serve their own gods after the manner of the nations among whom they've been carried away. To this day, they do they do according to the former manner. They do not fear God and they do not follow the statutes or rules or law or command that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So we've got we've got an interesting tension here. So these people, the Samaritan people, are taking part in some Jewish rituals, but they're mixing it up with other gods or other you know gods, um, small um, G gods that they other idols that they um, that come from the peoples and the backgrounds that they are. So the interesting tension is that the, I read some um, Jewish writings about this and from a Jewish perspective is that the Jews viewed that as as not right, that, that, that um, Yahweh is the one true God of Israel and that they, they should not have done that. Interestingly, from their own point of view, some of them had um, Israelite names and they viewed themselves as being partly Israelite. So they're wanting to be involved in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple comes from their um, their interest. They think that they have an interest in this and that they have a right to be involved because they have some sort of Jewish background. However, that's not what um, Zerubbabel and Joshua think. They think that. The, the Samaritans are being disingenuous. They've got they want they've got designs on this land. They want to be involved. And Zerubbabel and other leaders are not going to fall for this. They know that the um, the importance of of keeping the message pure, keeping keeping God's commandments pure. And it's interesting that this sort of keyed into. I think the the, the one of the um, I don't preach that often, but one of the times I've I've preached in in some time ago now was when we preached through Galatians, and the part in Galatians where Paul is very very concerned with keeping the message pure. He gets angry because people are starting to change what the gospel is. And I can see parallels here. There's they the Jewish people are very, very interested in keeping things right. They're going back to their homeland. They want the return to be a renewal. It is kicking out what we don't want and keeping to what we do want. I want you to hold that thought for a little bit later on when I when I come to the next part that I want to do. So then what happens? So having been told that when they sort of make this friendly-ish approach and say, can we, can we be involved? Can we help you? And the Jewish people have said no. They then get quite angry and they say, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors, lawyers against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So that's two verses, but that represents quite a long time. It's about 40-ish years. 
So over that time, the rebuilding is happening slowly and the Samaritans keep trying to thwart it at every turn. They make it really, really difficult. And this carries on and carries on, but they're not actually making that much headway. The Jewish people are still managing to get quite a bit of building done and make quite a bit of progress. So things then escalate. So in the reign of Azasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of, of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Meredith, Meredith Table and the rest of the companions wrote, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script, and actually this bit of the Bible is written in Aramaic script, and translated into the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in, in this fashion. From Rahum, the commander, Shimshay, the scribe, and the rest of all the companions and representatives of, of the Dinites, the Afro-Sashites, the, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan, the Deverites, the Alamites and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Oshnapa took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder above the river and so forth. So it's quite specific about who it's talking to. It is talking about the people, it is talking to the people that were taken into Babylonian captivity. And then this is the copy of the letter that was sent to King Xerxes from your servants, the men of the regions uh, beyond the river and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are, re are building the rebellious and evil city and are now finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonour. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that the search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So what is going on here? So this is a letter from the Samaritans to the king of Persia, basically trying to diss the Jews and say what, what's going on. And there's a mixture here of fact and fiction, which is what makes it so persuasive and powerful. So the Samaritans try to say that they're not going to pay the, the Jewish people are not going to pay their tax, tri tribute or custom. And they're also saying, look, we're on your side. It's not proper for us to see your dishonour because we're with you. We're part of your gang. Um, and because we receive support from the, this, this palace. So they're trying to align themselves with the Syrians, with the Persians. Um, and they also say this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces. And that's where there's a grain of truth in things. The Jewish people have been rebellious in the past. So they're trying to pick that up and big that up to try to make the king of Assyria turn against them. 
but what does the king of Assyria do? So this is the next bit. So there's another letter. So we've actually got recorded the king's answer. So to Rahab the commander, Shimshai, etc., etc. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I give the command and a search has been made. And it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings. And rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have been also mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that these, this city may not be rebuilt until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of kings? Now, when the copy of King Xerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So let's have a look at this. So I've broken down and pulled some bits out of this to just sort of look um, uh, uh, what he's saying there. So they found that the city in former times revolted against King's rebellion sedition. So the Samarian letter to stop the, the, the work was, as I've said, a combination of truth and lies. But here, the Persian king is picking up on what is true. So the sinful and tragic past of Jerusalem he is picking up on. Um, and many said there have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem. But he also notes that there have been times in times past where there were powerful kings of Judah, as we know from the book of Kings. So who had the power to tax and impose tribute on their neighbours. So he knows that Judah has the potential to return to be powerful. So he does give command for the work to cease and to make the make the, the Jews stop their rebuilding. So to that end, the Samaritan letter has been successful. Um, and he's that this king is probably the most powerful man in the world at the time. So they've done quite well to get him to do this. And by force of arms, he made them cease. So it meant that there was there was war. He made them he made them cease by force. And thus it did cease and it managed to be successful of, of stopping it for about 15 years. And we know that up until the second year of Darius, it actually stopped. So all of that's happened. So you've got there a picture of the return from Babylon to um, Jerusalem. And in chapter four, you've got a picture of the opposition that's happening. So I thought to myself, that's kind of like an exposition of what the history actually is. What does that mean for us today? What can we take from what is in there? And I felt that I could break it down into three parts. So there's opposition of the wider world. This is opposition of God's message, really. Opposition of the gospel is what I'm what I'm thinking of. Opposition within the church. And then opposition within ourselves. So we're going to um, we're going to look at that. So that sorry, that last bullet point should say within ourselves. Slight typo there. So opposition within the wider world. So I've just I've just put up some scriptures there, but I'd just like to share some thoughts about what I feel. And I think over the time that we've been in lockdown, we've had a kind of period of time to take stock 
And I know that several of us, several of us within um, free, Freedom that had a prophetic gift and within our wider church grouping, we kind of ended up the, the end of 2019 with an idea that God was doing something, that we were being prepared for something. So I can see parallels um, in that and what is happening in the book of Ezra. And, I'm, and we, we didn't know that what the thing was that was immediately going to happen was coronavirus. But we had a sense that something big was going to happen. And I think this time has been a time of preparing and a time of getting us ready for what God has for us next. But I also think it's allowed us to take stock of where we are in the world. I've been reflecting quite a bit on what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century. Um, and the truth is that there aren't many of us. There aren't many compared to the, to the, to the rest of the world. We are small. And I know um, my friend Nathan Paler, who you will know from Matthew Henry, has talked a lot about, you know, when we when I've, I've sat with friends and lamented the state of our nation and the fact that we don't appear to be a Christian nation anymore. One of the things Nathan says to me is we have to remember that, in a sense, we're not in Jerusalem, we're in Babylon. We are surrounded by people that oppose us. And actually, how do we react to that? There are some of us that know Jesus, that have a saving relationship with him, that, that have an understanding of what happened on the cross, that Jesus died and that, that his death on the cross took away our sins and the sins of the world for those that accept him. And that is the gospel. And he, he rose again on the third day to confirm that what, what had happened had actually happened. And that is true for us. But we know and we, we see and we look and we see what's going on in the world. and We see all the suffering and we see what see what's happening. We feel all this opposition. But what does that mean? And we can feel down about it. But I was sort of sparked by... Um, Keith giving it the tagline from this piece of scripture and actually thinking about it in these terms. And in, John, in, in John's gospel, in chapter 16, towards the end of the gospel, when he's talking to the, to the disciples and he's preparing them, although they don't realise it, he's preparing them for, for his death and what's going to happen next. He says, I have said these things to you that you may, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And that is a key, key scripture for any Christian and particularly at the moment. If we look at the world and we focus and have our eyes set on what's happening in the world, what's happening with the pandemic, what's happening in the world in, in general, what's happening in terms of the moral decay that's going on, all the different things that, that, you know, people are moving away from God's word, you know, that our nation was founded on and we see it drifting and drifting and drifting. If we keep looking at that, we will feel despair and we will feel that there is trouble. But the first part of that scripture, Jesus says that I've said these things that in me, you will have peace. So in Jesus, if we look at Jesus, um, as Sharon was saying er earlier, we have peace. 
If we look at look to him, we will have peace. If we look at the world, we will have tribulation. But he's overcome the world, so we need to look to him. So there is that opposition. The other thing that, that came to mind to me is the realization that as a Christian, I exist within the Christian family. And I do think that the, this time is a time of sort of winnowing or, you know, so, sorting wheat from chaff. And that there's a lot of pain and difficulty in that. So you know, I remember I was brought to mind that, that Jesus is recording a saying in, in Matthew's gospel. Um, I, I, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And that is probably one of the hardest scriptures. I have found that a very hard scripture and always did find it a hard scripture because my family are not Christians. I became Christian at university. Um, so I find this challenging, but the more I, I grow in my faith and the more I read God's word and the more I understand what the gospel, what it actually means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, the more I understand the truth of this scripture that yes, I pray for my family and I hope beyond hope that they will turn to Christ and that, that I will be able to share in my faith with them. But this is what Rob was praying and Sharon were praying early about putting, putting the Lord above everything else. And actually, the more and deeper you get into your faith, the more you're able to strip away those things and you actually see some of the things that you thought were on your side are actually opposing you or opposing your faith and opposing the gospel so that you can actually steer a path through that um, and make it. Um, and, there's a, and there is a deep sense of peace in that, because the closer I get to Jesus, the more peace I feel about it. So I still love my parents. I still hope that they'll come to know the Lord. But if they don't, I still have peace that that's God's will. That's a very hard thing to think about and to talk about. But I think it's an important, it's, it's an important movement in faith that we kind of find our family of faith and cleave to that. And we, we kind of everything else start, starts to fall away. The other thing I wanted to talk about, which is quite challenging, is opposition within the church. And this is another thing that I feel the Lord wanted me to, to bring out and talk about. And I was I, I thought about the parallels of, of what John, um, what Paul rather is saying in 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 6. And he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we that we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make a dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. So that touches on what I was just saying about our family relationships and our, our friendships with the world changing as we go deeper into our faith with Christ. But I think it also picks up what happened 
with the Samaritans in Two Kings that I was reading before. They felt that they were in some sense Jewish. They felt they were in some sense God's people because they took part in some of the Jewish rituals. But they were also doing other things. They were sacrificing to other idols. They were doing stuff that was in, in enmity to God. They were doing evil things. One of the verses that I skipped over um, because of the difficult names in it, and I just wanted to get to the point, but one of them, one of those people sacrificed their children to the particular Assyrian God. So evil, horrible things. So what I think that's bringing out and what that means for us today is that we, that we must be, as, as we said earlier in the, in the service, a single-minded people. Our minds should be set on Christ. It made me, as I prepared this, I was very challenged about thinking about what idols there are in my life. Anything that I put above God and above my relationship with Jesus is an idol and it needs to go. And it brought to mind you know, the concerns I have about, about um, generally, I'm not talking about our church particularly, but in the church in general, you see a sort of downgrading and you know, a lot of um, behaviours, a lot of change in, in what's acceptable and, and what policies are and what the, what the church thinks is right and wrong, which all has its root at a sort of lower view of scripture and a lower view of what the word of God means and that lower view then allows you to do other things because you know um if if you know if you say well just because it says it in the bible it doesn't mean anything in particular it just it's just a book it just says it in the bible but if you actually have the view that the bible is the word of God then that changes everything because you can't start opposing those things and still call yourself a Christian so in this book of Ezra, the Zerubbabel and um, Joshua, the reason that they oppose the Samaritans is they recognize that the Samaritans are tainting what God has done. They're mixing lots of stuff in. And you can see that in the church today in things like the prosperity gospel. This idea that, you know, if God loves you, the way God will show you that he loves you is that he'll give you lots of money. And, you know, that or a more subtle variation of that that some people fall up for, which is that if you're a Christian, you won't get ill in this life and you'll always be happy in the sort of materialistic, worldly way. You're always going to be happy and you'll always be ill. If you're ill, there must be some sin in your life. There's something going wrong. Um, you know, if you're not happy, if you've got depression, you can't put you know, that that's a sign that you're not a Christian. If you read scripture and you, you, you dig into scripture, you dig into the word of God. Those things are not true. God has said to us that we will have trouble. He promises us that we're going to suffer and have trouble in this world. That's what uh, in this world you will have trouble. Scripture from John 16 is talking about. We've been told that that will happen. But in Christ, we will have fullness of joy. And that joy is not a worldly happiness. It is a happiness that comes from Jesus being your everything. And the more you get into the Bible, the more you can see that. 
And the more you're able to, the more you pray, the more you spend time with God, the more you get to know Jesus on a one on a one on one level and the more joy you have in him. So I put at the bottom as a sort of reminder to myself, churchianity versus Christianity. Christianity, I mean, being a living relationship with Jesus where you have comprehended and accepted the gospel and you know um, Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And if if you're listening to this and you're thinking, Emma, I don't really know what you mean by that. and I don't understand what you mean by that. Then please um, ask for some prayer and, and come and talk to me or one of the other leaders in a breakout room. And we will explain to you what I mean by that, what it means to have a, a, a saving relationship with with Jesus. So and then the next thing I felt that, that God wanted to say, I kind of thought, well, is that the end? Is that all I want to say? I and mean, then I prayed about it. And actually, I felt that there's a third part, part of opposition. Sometimes we can feel and we can be in a place where there isn't that opposition. We're in a great church. We've got a great church with a high church view of scripture like, like our churches are. And we, we, we've got that is good. But I think we also need to think about the opposition from within ourselves. And by that, I'm talking about what Paul in Romans calls our flesh, our sinful nature. And this is something that I know I I wrestled with as a, a young Christian. And I know from chatting to some of the younger Christians in the church, some people are still, are, and it is a continual process, concerned by this and worried about this. And I particularly like this passage um, from Romans 7 I find this really helpful it's helpful to know that Paul struggled with this as well um, so Paul is talking about the flesh and the sinful nature and trying to explain what it means for him and he says for I do not understand my own actions I know what that feels like for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree with the law that is good so now it is no longer I who did it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So it, it's this idea of, I remember when I became a Christian, I reading the scripture in the way that I did in the early days of reading it, I thought that it would mean that I wouldn't sin anymore, or I certainly wouldn't sin nearly as much. And I'd say, yes, there was a bit of a reduction, but then some of the old behavior patterns and things that I was doing, I still did. And then I kind of got a bit worried because I thought, well, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Did anything happen when I accepted Jesus? I found this passage in Romans really, really helpful about this. And there is this sort of sense of opposition within ourselves. There is a war within ourselves between our flesh and our spirit. And we have our spirit has been saved by Jesus on the cross. Our sins have been paid for. But. As Paul puts it, which I find helpful, that sin nature that is in within us, our flesh, still wants to sin. And there's a sort of war within us that we have to kind of reconcile. And that won't end until Jesus comes back or we, we go to be with him. 
Um, it says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think that's referring to people who are still living in their sin and haven't accepted Christ yet. But what I think we need to understand is, and if we set our mind on the flesh, that leads to death. But if we set our mind on the spirit, um, that leads to life and peace. So for me, what that means is a turning from the sin nature to stop dwelling on that, but to dwell on Christ and to dwell on the spirit and walk in the spirit, to set our minds on the things that are of Jesus. And a good way of putting that, and one of my favourite books of scripture, is um, Colossians. I love Colossians. So let's have a little look at Colossians 3, because I think this pulls this out quite nicely. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When, when Christ, who, you, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, fleshly, within you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So it's that idea of idolatry. Whenever we put anything above God, that is an idol. So this, so this is where the idea of sin and idol, idolatry intersect. And it also brings to mind something that, that Julie Mitchell brought several weeks back, quite a long time back now, that thinking of us as being in a glass jar and the glass is Jesus. So that when God looks at us, he's seeing us through Jesus. So that take that idea take that it takes away our sin he's not seeing us he's not seeing the sin that we have committed that jesus has paid for it on the cross and that's what i had to bring so i've been a, i've i've walked us through hopefully what i feel you know the history and the you know what the um the, the actual events of the um return to from babylon to judea that that we're looking at in, in Ezra chapter four and how there was opposition to that and what I feel that means for us today. So there we are. <laughs>